Welcome to Real Issues, Real Conversations, a podcast from Ohio Humanities. In this series, we explore democracy and the informed citizen. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and this episode is one of a number of special programs that we're publishing this year to mark 100 years of women gaining the right to vote in the USA. The 19th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified in August of 1920. However, this episode, as with others in the series, is certainly not just going to be providing a historical perspective. It will also be about matters of vital importance today. And today my guest is Jen Miller, who's the Executive Director of the League of Women Voters of Ohio, which is also 100 years old this year, and you can find a link to it in the notes that accompany this podcast. Jen Miller, welcome to Real Issues, Real Conversations. Thanks for having me. So as we're speaking, it's the 19th of June of 2020, and we're in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. So we're recording this interview remotely from our respective homes in Columbus, Ohio. Jen, how are you doing in the middle of all of this? You know, I'm healthy, I'm safe, and I'm super grateful to be able to participate in Ohio's democracy. It's funny. So I will tell the listeners that we had a, a bit of problems scheduling this back and forth where we have various things going on, which meant that we had to keep uh, rescheduling it. And at one point you sent me a text saying you had to do some matters that were vital to the democracy today. So obviously you've been working very hard at this time. Absolutely. It's been a very, very busy year for the League of Women Voters. We expected that anyway, just because of how important the 2020 election is, but even more so in the midst of COVID-19, trying to figure out how we protect voters and poll workers and election officials and at the same time, allow, you know, an accessible democracy, accessible elections to move forward. Right. So I'm going to come back to that later in the interview. But first of all, can I ask you, how did the League of Women Voters of Ohio begin? What's its history? So Ohio has a rich history in women's suffrage. And the League of Women Voters was actually formerly the Ohio Women's Suffrage Association at one point, the National Women's Suffrage Association was also based in Ohio, but they were different organizations. We were formed in the 1880s. Our focus was to get at the state level enfranchisement for women. We worked at that many, many times. We failed multiple times at the ballot box, except we were able in the 1890s to um, secure the right for women to vote on school board races which is a little bit of a mixed bag. It's great that women were able to express their beliefs um, on school board, but it also was this sense that for women, the appropriate sphere was around family and children. And that was the only thing that, you know, Ohio men, when they, when they passed this, thought uh, women could work on or vote on effectively. But we, as the Ohio Women Suffrage Association, then turned our focus on Ohio's ratification. And we just ratified in June of 1920. And we then, as we realized that the 19th Amendment was going to ratify, that we needed to switch gears and become an organization that served voters. And so from the very beginning, we were working to educate voters on how to vote, where to vote, when to vote, as well as, you know, being informed voters about the issues and the candidates. 
So I like to talk about how at the time, a lot of men may not have wanted women to have that right to vote. So if you can imagine being a newly enfranchised voter and maybe the voter in your household, your dad, your husband, your brother, your uncle, didn't even think you should have that right, you're probably not going to want to learn to vote from them. So the idea was women were going to understand the democratic process and then teach and empower other women. It's expanded well beyond women throughout the years to all voters, whether they're members or not, women or men or non-binary, to communities all over the state, geographically and in identity. That was one of the questions that I was going to ask, actually, is, is was it still just for women, but evidently not? No, I mean, our founders were all women. Let's remember that there were men who worked on suffrage, but our founders were all women. We had 14 organizations who made up the league or made the decision to translate or transfer, if you will, the organization from the Women's Suffrage Association to the League of Women Voters of Ohio. And they were nurses and teachers and newspaper women and business women, the Federation of Colored Women's Clubs, the DAR, the National Council for Jewish Women. So just a very interesting, diverse group. But at this time, we actually had a lot of male members, and sometimes they're even in leadership roles as well. That's interesting. So I know that the League of Women Voters has lots of ways in which it does its work, but can you tell me some of the key functions that you have adopted? I think there's really three buckets of work. So the first bucket is about the system of democracy. How is the system working? Can we improve the system? And so things like that over the years has meant, you know, fairness in ballots, you know, rotating various names of folks running for a particular office so that it's not always the first person first, things like that. It has meant things like mail-in voter registration, getting that passed, and then online voter registration. And now we're trying to get automated voter registration when someone goes to the BMV, that they can automatically have their registration updated unless they decline. So there's a whole piece that's about the function of democracy. So not just on the voter piece, but also redistricting, open government, open meetings, sunshine laws. What's a sunshine law? A sunshine law is when government has to basically make visible to the public their operations. So that could be public notice. That could be if you request documents that they have to make those documents available. There's a lot of different pieces to it. Sometimes we think of it as a freedom in information. Um, so there's another bucket that is about just serving voters. So there's a piece that's about how is the system working for voters? And then there's a piece that's about straight up serving and educating voters. And so things like that include our nonpartisan voter guide. We do a significant amount of voter registration, candidate and issue forums where voters can hear from both sides of an issue and determine for themselves. So there's a whole piece that's about that. And then finally, we do have a piece that's really more social policy. It's a little bifurcated where we focus most of our attention on democracy issues. But from the very beginning, the League was working on social policy. So it's just a natural outgrowth that we weren't just empowering women voters, but empowering them to advocate in the government. 
issues that we initially started working on had to do with marriage laws. At the time that the 19th Amendment passed, there were still child marriages and forced marriages in Ohio. Women were not able to divorce, and if they did, they might not get custody of their children or might not be able to get any of the property. So, you know, really a natural outgrowth of the league would be twofold to be looking at not just empowering those voters, but also empowering women to raise their voices. Other issues, um, child labor, public education, clean water and healthcare. So 1920, let's remember that the Spanish flu had just passed, but there also had still had been cholera outbreaks that previous decade in Ohio. Um, So we do have three different areas of work. So you have a staff, but obviously you have people who join and volunteer their time. What do people joining the League of Women Voters get? And how do volunteers carry out service in support of the organization? I think that's great. So being a member means that you are supporting an organization that for 100 years has defended democracy and promoted voting. I think being a member is really for folks just really believing in the work and we're grateful for that. We have so many volunteers and we have volunteers doing very intensive and heavy duty work. So we have one of the largest all volunteer run voter registration operations in the state. We have a lot of volunteers who meet with their local boards of elections to make sure they understand how the election is going to function so that they can better serve and educate voters. We have a lot of volunteers who go down to the state house or go down to city hall or county commission meetings to advocate or lobby or sometimes even just observe. In a lot of places, our volunteers are taking notes and observing and then sharing that information with the public in terms of what happened. Our volunteers just do everything from media interviews to collecting signatures when we were trying to get redistricting reform on the ballot, which we successfully did. So I guess the lesson learned is that we do have a tiny staff, but we meet our mighty mission through a core of volunteers across the state. That's very inspiring. Now, I know that the League of Women Voters was set up and remains a non-partisan organization. How do you go about that when the people involved all have their own political views. Right. I think it's so important to be nonpartisan because there needs to be organizations in this policy making sphere that aren't concerned about the outcomes for specific candidates or parties. And our job is really to advocate for voters and democracy itself. And we're really honored to play that role It means a lot of things. It means there's a lot of rules for staff and board members in terms of not contributing to certain campaigns or being very public about their beliefs. A lot of board members struggle with that. Others understand that this is their job. So, you know, but it is, it can be a sacrifice for someone. Um, Other things we do. So our voter guide online, vote411.org, and you can still get this in print in many places in Ohio as well, but our voter guide is set up so that candidates or issue campaigns can respond to the questions, but we cannot edit them. It's purposefully designed so that 
the candidate or the campaign puts the information in and that's what the voter reads. Similarly, we allow third party, minority party candidates to have space and to answer the same exact questions. So the last governor's race we had, we had more candidates with information on our vote411.org portal than any other outlet in the state because it included write-ins and minority party candidates. So what we do is we bake it into our systems so that it's not even possible if someone really wanted a certain candidate to win that there would be some way to give them an advantage. We do it through our forums. We work very hard to work on questions with a broad group of folks and then to find mediators that we think are also nonpartisan, like perhaps a trusted media ally or a university professor. So there's just a lot of different aspects to nonpartisanship, and we're very proud of that stance. Okay, so I'm just testing this out. I've gone to the 411.org site. I've gone to the voter guide, and I've entered my address, and it says there are three races. So I'm going to look at the U.S. president race, and it says make selection. And so I open up that tab and it tells me what the president does. It tells me how much the president is paid. The information is given in English and Spanish. And then it shows all of the candidates who had been running for the Democratic nomination. So say if I had clicked on Bernie Sanders, say, I see his biographical information. And then he's answered a whole bunch of questions such as, Explain where you see the opportunities for Democrats and Republicans to find common ground on the very serious issues facing this country. There's a whole range of questions and he's provided answers to those. And I guess that's the same for all of the candidates. So what happens is you send all these questions to each of the candidates and then they send their answers back and you post them. No, they actually enter them directly. They get a login to vote411.org. That is their login. We have to invite them. So you couldn't just pretend you're running for something. <laughs> but, you know, we look for their contact information for the campaign. Sometimes the campaigns call us, which is really great. It can be hard to find the contact information. They get a login and they enter their answers directly. Okay, got it. So another thing that you mentioned that you're doing is these studies about particular issues. And when I was checking on the website earlier, it looked like the two things that you're looking at at the moment are health equity and arming school personnel. So again, I'm curious, how do you go about this without taking any kind of partisan view? Everything the league does is based on intensive study. And that has been the case for 100 years. Our studies on social policy issues or democracy issues can take years, often take years. The committee of members who does the study are expected to be diverse in discipline and identity and geography across Ohio. The committee must do research from many angles and invite individuals in um, or organizations in who represent different perspectives. So for example, for the armed school personnel study, absolutely could be hearing from, should be hearing from the teachers union, but also an association that promotes firearm ownership. That is how we do it. The members are updated multiple times. We have a schedule for updating and engaging members. 
And then at many different moments, members can give us input into the process. And ultimately, the members vote on our convention floor, which happens every other year, as to whether we should take a stance on that issue or not, and what that stance should be. I know you get interviewed a great deal and you appear in the press on numerous occasions. I just recently read an article in the New York Times in which you feature and the article was called COVID-19 changed how we vote. It could also change who votes. And this is from the New York Times. It was published on the 14th of June and it's by Michael Wines. So what are some of the current issues that are presenting challenges to you as an organization that wants to help people to vote given the pandemic situation? There are so many challenges. The first would be how we do voter registration. Most of our voter registration efforts are outside at major events. So perhaps at a farmer's market, but a lot of farmer's markets aren't really gathering in the same way. Citizenship ceremonies, which have been paused. Festivals where we would have rovers and or tables and those festivals are canceled and a lot of our members are concerned about coronavirus they might be immune compromised they might be taking care of someone who's immune compromised they might be older so the voter registration is completely going to change we are going to be trying to encourage voters to check and update their registration mostly through online and digital formats similarly we are not likely to have candidate forums. So our local leagues will have candidate forums where maybe the voters could come to the library and hear from everyone running for city council or or local judge or, you know, those forums we're now trying to figure out how to do online where we can get all the candidates online together. And then we have to worry about technology glitches. Let's say one candidate's microphone stops working, then someone might think that we're fidgeting with that on purpose to be unfair, which is something we wouldn't do. So I think we have to think through how we're serving voters in really unique ways. And, you know, in 2018, we reached about a half a million Ohioans with nonpartisan voter information. Our goal this year before COVID-19 was to reach a million. And so now we really have to think how we would do that. Our um, posters and placards about how to vote are in libraries and churches and schools across the state, but a lot of those places are also not displaying materials or people are not necessarily going in. So we are rethinking all of our voter service and voter education work. Right. Um, I'm just curious, coming back to something you said earlier, because it had a personal resonance for me. You said one of the ways you get people to vote is by being present at citizenship ceremonies. So I became a naturalized U.S. citizen in January of last year. And I think unusually the ceremony was held at the Franklin Board of Elections. I think normally it's held downtown. And that was part of the ceremony. We were given voter registration forms and it was the first thing I did as a US citizen before I even left the building. But is that not standard? Um, It depends, but usually we work with the officials who run the citizenship ceremonies to be in there as volunteers. So it might have actually been a league volunteer who handed you that registration form or taken it because that's the case throughout the state as we go to serve voters that way. That's great. And apparently another big area is graduating high school students, getting them to register because they're suddenly becoming eligible. Is that right? 
Yeah. So one of the things that's happened in our high school curriculum is we don't teach civics the way we used to. And so a lot of area schools will work with our leagues. It'll be league volunteers that go in and they teach a civics class. They talk about the importance of voting. They bring registration cards. And as long as that student will be 18 by the time of election day, they can register and even vote in the primary. So we do that. And then if the students are younger or they don't know if they should register, we uh, give them a pledge to vote card, which they put their information on there and we follow up with them when it's time for them to register because we might have 16 year olds in the class, for example. So what is the nitty gritty of voting? And once you're registered, do you stay registered or do you have to keep re-registering? So lots of questions there to unpack. The first is you should get a card in the mail when you register. And you should get a card in the mail telling you where your polling location is before every election. And then you remain on the rolls for the most part. Here's the issue. In Ohio, we have something called the supplemental process, or some people call it the purge. And what happens is if you don't vote in a two-year period, you get sent a postcard that says, hey, you need to vote or re-register within four years, or you're going to be removed from the voter rolls. The idea is they are assuming that you may have passed away or moved if you're not voting. The problem is that the postcard is really confusing. I think there's also the problem that there's a lot of individuals who may not vote except for presidential elections. So there are a lot of living, breathing Ohioans who still live in the same place who could be at risk of being removed from the voter rolls for inactivity. That is why we are trying to upgrade our voter registration system. Certainly some of those individuals may have just moved and forgotten to update their registration. That happens all the time and that's not great for the system. And so that's why we are promoting when someone goes to the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, where you have to prove your identity anyway, that at the same time, that staff person could look and say, oh, I see that you've moved. I would like to automatically update your registration. And you could at that time say, no, thank you. Because maybe one was a work address and one was a home address, or you have two homes in Ohio and there's a certain place you want to vote, you know, that kind of thing. But the idea would be that we would have much cleaner voter rolls, more accurate voter rolls, and also not have this need to do these massive voter roll cleanups where we're removing names just because we haven't heard from anyone. And what's the easiest way that uh, somebody who's concerned can just check whether they're registered or not or re-register? Everyone, 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 everyone should check. Even if they voted in the primary, they should check their registration before the registration deadline, which is 30 days before any election. And you just go to voteohio.gov, which is the Secretary of State site. And why do I say everyone? Because this idea of cleaning up rolls is done by human beings And so you could accidentally be removed, you know, like if your name is similar to someone else's or so it's just really important to check every single time, whether you're a regular voter or not. Okay, so that's great. That's really helped to answer some of the questions that I had just as a relatively new citizen. Now, tell me a bit more about this current situation. Is there a policy that's specifically related to COVID-19 issues? (laughs) My dog, Marley. Marley's like, I really believe in voting. I really like COVID-19 because my mom's always home. Marley, stop it. 
So um, our goal for running an election during COVID-19 is really the same as it always is. We just have additional considerations. We never want poll workers or voters to have to choose between their health and participating in democracy. And that can be pretty difficult in a place like Ohio, where 85% of Ohioans wait to vote in person on election day. So that can mean gathering of so many people in indoor spaces. And so what does that mean for this fall? We firmly support in-person voting for those who want to do that. We also support absentee voting, which is when you don't need an excuse. You can just decide that you want to vote by mail. You request your ballot. Your ballot is mailed to you. You send it back. And also early voting. We have 28 days of early voting. So the goal this year is to reduce the lines on election day by getting as many Ohioans as possible to vote early or to vote absentee through the mail. If we can spread out participation, we should be able to then manage lines in a safe way on election day for all those who want to show up in person. So early voting, is that voting in person, but just on an early day? Yes, that's exactly what that is. And so for us, we would like to see multiple early voting locations. We think it's unfair to only have one of those locations in a county because of how far some may have to travel versus others to get there. The closer you live to your early voting center, the far more likely you are to vote early. But yeah, you use a machine. functions like election day in terms of walking in and participating in the voting process. Voting absentee is more challenging. If you don't have a printer for your application, you have to call your board of elections and ask them to mail you the application. Then you fill that out. You mail that application back. If you made a mistake, which a lot of people make mistakes, right? They'll put today's date and the birth date or their sign where they're supposed to print. Those kinds of mistakes, they're going to mail back to you a new application and tell you to reapply. And then you have to mail that back. You know, so it's a very inefficient process. What we've been trying to do with the General Assembly is model other states, and there's quite a few, who have online absentee ballot requests. You would still have to prove you are who you are on that application online. And then they would send you that ballot and you would still again have to prove who you are on that mail-in ballot. But we think that would make voting by mail more attractive to more voters because it would be more efficient. Okay. Now, one of the things that I've been talking about with some of the other interviewees in this series where we have been looking at, you know, 100 years of women's suffrage and coming to understand that it's not just a celebration. It didn't mean votes for all women. There are still a lot of people for whom voting is a challenge. Is that a big issue in Ohio? Well, I think it certainly was for the primary. Once we transitioned to vote by mail for the primary and under such a short time frame of only four weeks, Given how inefficient our system is, a lot of people were cut out of that process. There certainly were people who gave up because the system was confusing or they ran out of time. They applied and their ballot didn't come. And then, you know, you could if your ballot didn't come, you could show up to the Board of Elections to vote. But I've heard from at least one voter who had COVID-19 was COVID positive 
and chose not to go vote because she didn't want to infect others potentially. So I think for the primary, we really did struggle. And it wasn't, boards of elections and the Postal Service were all trying, but four weeks is just not enough time for an extremely inefficient vote-by-mail process. I think what we can do is we can learn from our challenges and continue to make voting more accessible. I am very pleased that we have no excuse absentee, early voting, and in-person voting, all three. We believe that multiple forms of access are good for voters and good for boards of elections. So I think there's that accessibility. Um, The voter ID issue can be confusing as well, but we are pleased that there are multiple forms of ID that can be accepted. Of course, we would like to add passports to that form of ID for those who don't have driver's license, but maybe do travel. But overall, I think Ohio generally has a good system that's mostly accessible and very, very, very secure. We're always trying to balance the security of elections. We want voters to trust that their voices will be heard and that the results will be accurate. And we do have very strong security in Ohio, regardless of the method that you vote. But sometimes that security can get in the way of people's access. And I would argue that the whole idea that are requesting absentee ballots through the mail is something that's more secure, but it really does limit access because it just takes more time. A lot of people don't have printers at home. And so we're always looking to balance those two pieces because both are important. I think I've covered everything that I meant to cover. Are there any other issues that you would like to bring listeners attention to? Well, I mean, I think let's talk a minute about suffrage and let's talk a minute about what this means. You know, we do commemorate the 19th Amendment. We don't celebrate it out of our commitment to understanding public policy through many different lenses. And so for an African-American woman, she may not feel the same way about the 19th Amendment because many black women did not have full access to the ballot until the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Native American women didn't become citizens until 1924, but even then states were refusing to recognize the rights of Native American women to vote. And it wasn't until 1962 in Utah that we could be assured that Native American women had that right. That's what I mean by always continuing to look at access because it wasn't necessarily that people were being denied at the polls with a gun, right? It could have been that they didn't pay their poll tax or they couldn't read or that they didn't have a certain kind of identification. And those are all ways that technically they didn't, there wasn't a law in the book saying you couldn't vote, but the way that the elections were implemented had terrible consequences for various disenfranchised communities. And so today we are still doing that same thing. When we see what changes are being made to the electoral system, it is our job as voter advocates to make sure that it's working. So an example might be if a whole bunch of polling locations are consolidated, that might for the Board of Elections or Secretary of State make good sense on a systematic level, it doesn't necessarily make sense for the voters. 
So then our job is to make sure that voters are being informed that the polling locations have changed, that that location is in a place that's accessible if someone is using public transit. You know, there's a lot of considerations. And so our job at the end of the day is to be the experts on how voters interact with systems so that voters really can access the ballot. And that's how 100 years later, our work still matters because we will continue to change the way elections operate as technologies change, as populations and geography changes. But we need to make sure that as we do that, that the systems are secure, but they're also allowing every eligible voter to cast their ballot and have their voices heard. And I encourage our listeners to go and visit your website, which is lwvohio.org, because there's a ton of resources there, including excellent information about women's suffrage, including a, a reading list and a discussion guide, both of which I found incredibly useful. And there's lots of other resources on there, too. So, uh, listen, thank you so much for joining us today, Jen Miller. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Again, my guest today was Jen Miller, who's the Executive Director of the League of Women Voters of Ohio. You can find out more about her and the organization, including the materials discussed in this episode, in the notes which accompany the podcast. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and this is Real Issues, Real Conversations, a podcast of Ohio Humanities, which is the state-based partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The views expressed here don't necessarily reflect those of the National Endowment. The programme is part of Democracy and the Informed Citizen, an initiative administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils. The project seeks to deepen our knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism and an informed citizenry. Many thanks to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for their generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for their partnership. Thanks also to SokolovskyMusic.com. To learn more about Ohio Humanities podcasts and other projects and programs, please visit OhioHumanities.org.